Welcome back to the podcast. This is Andrew, and on this episode, Gray is talking with Mike Michalowicz. Mike is the author of a pretty popular book called Profit First. If you haven't had a chance to read Mike's book, I highly recommend that you pick it up. Um, it is kind of a counterintuitive way to running your agency finances, and it is a way that ensures that you profit first as the owner of the business. Mike's going to dig into his methodology in this interview, but even after listening to this, I encourage you to go out and pick up Mike's book because applying this method to your business can really change how things flow for you. Again, this interview came or this interview was first recorded live in our free agency community, Agency Journey Insiders. If you're not yet a member of that free Facebook community, I encourage you to head over to agencyjourneyinsiders.com. That'll redirect you to the group and you can join right there where you can catch interviews like this live, engage in discussion with agencies, agency owners from around the world, and just hang out with some cool people that are on the same journey that you are. So without further ado, here we go. All right, we are live here. Second guest of the day, batting second, Mike McCallowitz. Um, Mike, you're an awful lot of things, including an author, and we'll be talking about um, Profit First, probably primarily here today. But thanks so much for joining us on Agency Journey Live. Oh, it's my joy to be second up to bat. This is uh, <laughs> this is a blast. I hope I hope the first person was at least on first base. Or, hopefully, they hit a home run. I take it back. Hopefully, yep. they did a, a home run. <laughs> Did you did you play baseball at all growing up, little league? Yeah, little league, little league. Okay, yeah. yeah. I was uh, I was in left field, which is also stands for left out. There you go. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Um, I feel like I tie everything back to baseball, so that's. But most of us, most of us can relate to it. So, anyways, yeah. um, you've got uh, an extensive background here, um, and profit first is the main book that I'd like to focus on. But maybe maybe we could just start with. Um, kind of what led you to writing that it's not your not your only book um, and we can get into some of the other ones but what kind of was what was the journey that led you uh, to this point to talk about what does it look like to build a business that actually turns a profit yeah so uh, it's, it's from my own struggles I, my, my inception for, for profit first was uh, I was an entrepreneur the entirety of my life I still am I still own some businesses I, I do consider myself a full-time author that's my primary vocation mm. and um, but back then, I owned just businesses, and I was, I was running some companies, and they were never profitable. It was all about you know, pounding my chest on the revenue and the sales and grow, grow, grow. But these businesses were really struggling. I was accumulating debt. The stress was overwhelming. Um, and ultimately, I had a collapse. This, this, my third business attempt was, was a disaster and uh, lost all my wealth, lost all my money, uh, lost my house over it, lost everything. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't a joyous period, but that – period now I'm joyful for because when I reflect upon that, that was the financial heart attack I needed to realize I was unhealthy. Hmm. And I, I started to try to devise a system for myself to drive profitability without the need to change who I am. Because Greg, what I found out for myself is it's really hard. And I think it's true for most of us. It's really hard to change our habits. We are who we are. And I found the best way is if we want a new result in, in my life, if I can continue an existing behavior but set up a system around it that channels myself to an outcome I want, that's the best way to do it because then I don't need to change. Right. So I devised the profit first system. And it's not like something – it wasn't like something I invented from scratch. I took best elements. Like there's this concept of pay yourself first. It's been around for centuries. I took that idea and applied it to business. There's this concept called the envelope system. I pulled that in and applied it. 
uh, there's these things called the priming effect and these different kind of behavioral responses of where we put significance. Um, another one called the a loss aversion um, behavior response. And I took all these elements and kind of packaged them together and made a real simple system for myself to drive profitability. And uh, the great news is I started the system uh, 10 years ago for myself. And it was bumping in the beginning, but I've had now – I'm approaching 40 quarters. I think it was like 37 consecutive quarters of profit distributions mm-hmm. in my businesses. And it started off, it was, it started off as molecular. It was so small, but it's grown and grown and grown. And it's now provided a life that I, I've dreamt about. And uh, about six years into it, I said, oh, my gosh, I, I, I need to give the system to other people. I already had become an author. I was, I'd written other books. But I was like, now it's time. i got to deliver the system to more people. And I'm, I'm thrilled today that there's – a lot of people doing profit first. Yeah, that's awesome. So one of the fundamental things that you talk about in the book and kind of that you learned was just flipping the math equation of business on its head. Yeah. And you want to explain that and then maybe we'll give people a quick overview of it. And then I've got what I wanted to kind of throw at you or some of the objections around, well, why would I not do that? Which I'm sure you've heard a million times. How do we get people to, to take action off of this and go from where they are today to sure, of course. actually executing? Of course. So it's funny that in regards to the formula, someone once said to me, just because 50,000 people say the wrong thing doesn't make it right. Right. And, um, the concept of the formula for profit has been said more than 50,000 times. We're told that sales minus expenses equals profit. And, um, if you look at any accounting book, if you talk with any entrepreneur, it's all about that formula. In fact, the vernacular we use around profit is we call profit the bottom line mm-hmm. or the year end. Everything signifies it comes last. Here's the problem with that formula. I understand the logic behind it. Yeah, a lot mathematically it works, but it doesn't work behaviorally. And us entrepreneurs, us human beings, we are behavioral animals. We, we work within certain behavioral patterns. And one fundamental element of our behavior is when something is last or the bottom, it means it's insignificant. That's what we call you know, something a bottom feeder. That's not a complimentary term. Um, the, you know, I would never say, oh, I'm going to start putting my health last now because I care about my health. <laughs> no, that means it's insignificant. Last means insignificant and it's the perpetual manana syndrome. Interestingly, when something comes first, it means it's the priority. When we say, I'm going to put my health first or I'm going to put family first, we are prioritizing something because we see it as significant and it's the first thing we do in the morning. It's the, the first thing that gets taken care of. Well, what I do in Profit First is I flip the formula. Instead of sales minus expenses equals profit, which is telling us sells everything you can and spend expenses everything you can, the new formula is sales minus profit equals expenses. You have to have sales. That's the source of inbound cash flow. But then what we're going to do is, in practicality, extract our profit prior to spending a penny. It's the pay yourself first principle. Hide it away from our business and then run our business off the remainder. That's the core essence of the formula. Right. So when we do that, obviously the question is, which we've got however many pages here trying to address this hesitation or concern, but well, how do I, how do I know for sure that I can spend enough, which is comical when you actually start to break it down in, in, uh, based on the formula that you just laid out that we wouldn't be more concerned with profit than with our expenses or at least equally concerned. Right. Um, but that's the, that's the common objection is, well, I, I don't know if I can afford to take a profit first. <laughs> right, right. It, it's, it's funny. And so the, the answer is this new formula will tell you. Because when you take your profit first, the remaining money is available to run your business. 
if you don't have enough money to pay your bills, that's your business telling you you can't afford those bills. There's something fundamentally flawed inherently to the business. You must fix the business. Before, what we do is we just expand our expenses and spending to the last penny we have. Uh, there was a study uh, that I heard of. I'm not sure of the source anymore. 83% of small businesses are surviving check by check. And from my own practical experience, I think it's upwards of 90% of businesses. Um, by the way, we don't carry ourselves that way. You'll never meet uh, a vendor of yours saying, we're dying financially. Hey, you want to do business with us? Well, you know, the, the way we do business prevents us from sharing the actual financial truth. But the reality is the vast, vast majority of businesses are struggling. And when we start taking our profit first, if you want to have a 10% profit or 20% bottom line, if you look at the fiscally elite providers in, in your industry or my industry or any industry, I know this is true for agencies. You know, there, there's some companies that make some fat profit margins. So it's doable. There's no question about it. Others are doing it. Why aren't we doing it? But we take our profit first and then it tells us what we need to do. And there's only two things we can do. Remove unnecessary costs, you know, and you can cut costs. Second is increase margin. How do you offer more value, increase your price needs accordingly to get that gap between what you sell for and your what you're spending? So increase margin, cut cost. Always the two solutions, but we will not be aware of it until we take our profit first and our business tells us something's fundamentally flawed here, can't pay our bills, we need to fix this. Right. Now, so basically, and we're not going to go through – the entire book. I want to get across kind of the high level, and then I want people to go read this and understand the, all the ins and outs, and you get into a lot of use cases, and how about in these specific edge cases. But basically, the formula is, hey, we preset. We're going to take this amount, whatever X percentage is, is going to turn into profit of our sales initially, and obviously, we'll start more conservatively and work our way. Obviously, yeah. where we start isn't where we're going to end. <clears throat> That's right. And then we break down a couple other key buckets that we're going to have and the number of buckets or what those specific ones look like may be a little bit different depending on the business model that you're running. And that bucket question is one I wanted to run by you, which is, is there anything different in the agency business model that you've seen consistently pop up that would change kind of what those other buckets maybe should be? Yeah. Now just uh forewarning, I don't know digital agencies too well, but I do know that some of them have ad spend. Actually, I work very closely with one. Yep. And what happens is, so I have a client, right, who uh, wants to run, just say, Facebook ads or whatever it is or some pay-per-clicks. They give me, say, $10,000 to do all my services, but 8000 of that is designated toward ad spend or something. Right. That's a, a unique scenario that I think digital, digital agencies and traditional agencies have is that I believe we should set up another bucket or another account. So that in Profit First, there's what I call the five foundational accounts. There's income, the inbound flow of money. It's a serving tray of cash. You never pay a bill out of there, but you're going to carve that cash up on that serving tray and allocate it to other accounts. There's a profit account. We've touched on this, but I want to be clear what a profit account is. This is recognition for being a shareholder. You, if you own an agency – you have taken extraordinary risk. You've done what you know, 97% of the world population will never do and never should do. You've become an entrepreneur. Uh, and th there's inherent risk to this. Hopefully your business will continue to soar, but many, sadly, businesses go out of business. You've taken on that risk. Profit distributions is a reward for taking that risk. You, you roll the dice uh, at the roulette table. Actually, that doesn't work. The roulette <laughs> tables don't have dice. But you know, at the craps table, I guess. You roll the dice at the craps table. You took that risk. This is now the payback for rolling those dice. So that's what the profit account is. 
The next account is called owner's compensation that's different than profit. Owner's compensation is paying the owner-operator. So if you work within your organization, and many small businesses we do, you get paid a salary. That's where this comes from. The fourth bucket is taxes to pay for your tax reserve. So when your tax bill comes, we're doing this live two days after tax day, right? Yep. For three days. Yeah. <laughs> How many people got caught with their pants around their ankles financially uh, this time of year? Well, the business is going to reserve your taxes. And regardless, by the way, of the formation of company you have, you have an S-Corp or a C-Corp or an LLC or an LLP or whatever it is, the company can pay your taxes. You just have to work with your accountant to get the right structure. Then uh, the last account traditionally of the foundational five is the operating expenses. This is what we run the business uh, administrative costs and all the operation costs out of. It's the, what I call the business's lifestyle account. The business has to live off this last account. But when it comes to an agency, I would set up one more account, which is the ad spend. And basically what I do is when that $10,000 hits the income account, realize you didn't make $10,000. You made $2,000. $8,000 was designated to ad spend. Effectively, the client could have just sent the money right to Google or whoever you're using. It's They're using you as a convenience. So we have the responsibility as an agency to take that $8,000 out of the income account, immediately put it in the ad spend account, and it just sits there. Now you have clarity. Okay, our company just made $2,000 for the services we're providing, the consulting and the management of that money. That $2,000 now gets carved up into those accounts I just went over. And now you've separated that money that the client's given you for a very specific reason for ads from the operations and the profitability of your business. That I think is is perfect, and that is a super common example, especially in agencies who are engaged in, in paid media. Of yeah. any kind. But basically any of those other pass-through accounts, which are kind of covered in uh, at the very end of Profit First in the book, um, yep. that's how you would, would then handle those. Uh, obviously, you're not going to – if you're taking 15% of profit, and in that example, you're not going to take uh, $1,500 as your profit, but you'll take a, a 15% of, of the 2000 that your agency is actually making. Exactly. And, and putting that through. Now, here's something I've had a whole bunch of follow-up conversations since reading the book. I actually just read it for the first time in the very over Christmas break here, beginning oh, cool. of, of January. Um, and in, so in conversation since then and writing to people about it, uh, huge hesitation. I'm sure you hear this all the time. This will be nothing new to you. Like I re- I'm really supposed to set up all these different bank accounts yeah, yeah, yeah. for this stuff. Yeah. Um, maybe yeah. just to hit that one for the people who right off the bat – want to discard it and not even read the rest of the book once they, once they hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, and I, and I understand and appreciate that feeling. Some people say, well, I can just do this on a spreadsheet or I can just do it in my accounting system. And the truth is you can. And the actual truth above that is you already do. So if you look at your accounting system, it's called a chart of accounts. All these inf- information's in there. Your money's carved up into a million slices. So the question back is, how's that serving you? And for the majority of entrepreneurs I interview, they say, well, I don't look at my accounting system. I revert to look at my bank balance and I make gut decisions. So that means to use a spreadsheet, which is similar to an accounting system or accounting system to manage these accounts, will do nothing for you because your people tell me they're already not doing it. The key to realize is this, is we need to intercept our existing behavioral path. I, and I still do it, log into my bank account, you know, two or three times a day, to be honest. And I will see if I, you know, that deposit come in, do I have money? And I make decisions based upon what I see in my bank account. If I have money, I know I can spend. And if I don't, then I got to sell something to somebody. You know, panic ensues. So since that's my natural behavioral path, and 
I've had the blessing now to interview and survey hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs. I, I will do, I'm doing a speaking engagement next week. There's a thousand people in the audience. I'll ask people how many people revert to bank balance accounting as I just explained it. And I would say 90% of the hands go up. That's the normal behavior. So when we set these accounts up, we are intercepting our, ba- our path. Next time when you have these accounts set up, you log into your bank, you see where the money's going and it's pre-allocated. You know the intended use of the money. Instead of a one lump sum, many business owners have a single account or two, one lump sum of money where you say, oh, I can use that money for this and that. We we revert to spending on something apparent and obvious but not necessarily impactful. Now that the money's carved up, you know what's truly available for what pre-intended purpose. The other form of resistance I get, they say, but Mike, I have to go to the bank and set this up. That could be, they're going to charge me a fee, uh, or this is going to take me an hour or two. So let's say it takes two hours. It is, from my experience, we have over 150,000 businesses doing this now, it is the best spent two hours in driving profit in your business that you will ever spend. This will bring profit to your business because it's intercepting your behavioral path and it's directing money toward profit. So if you want permanent profitability, my argument now, and I'm vehement, is it's two hours, the best two hours you'll probably ever spend in your life to drive permanent profit. Right. The second thing is with fees, with the bank and so forth, banks are businesses. They're vendors of ours. You can negotiate. If the bank says, sorry, we charge this fee, say, sorry, I'm not going to do banking with you. Wait until you see the manager go, uh, let's see if we can figure something out. Your, your cash is just as green at the bank down the street. So don't think that um, one bank – is necessarily better than the other, find the bank that's best suited for you. And there's a lot of banks out there that don't charge fees or are willing to negotiate on it um, and, and accommodate you. And quite frankly, I want to work with vendors that are looking to serve me. If a bank is not willing to adjust or accommodate my needs, they just don't want my business. And that's fine, but I don't think we're a good match and I find a different bank. Right, right. It's very similar. I mean, just like the envelope system. Like, yes, it's actually It's exactly it. But <clears> – <throat> If it gets you to modify your behavior in the appropriate ways, then obviously it's it's worth it. So yeah, yeah, and I'd say cha- I'm just not to to be too picky, but I would say channel your behavior. It's supposed to modify. I, I found the goal is not to change ourselves. It's very hard to change ourselves, but to channel an existing behavior and get the outlet or the achievements that we want out of it. So not basically the behavior is we're already checking the bank accounts and we're just you're already right, right, doing it. it. You're right, doing it. This is going to give you more clarity now because you you'll see what you're already doing in a new way. Right. Okay. That's a, that's a great distinction. So um, as far as running um, Profit First as an agency, there's really, I mean, from my perspective, there's really no excuse in such a, the one of the lowest barrier to entry businesses um, is being a digital marketing agency. You have a laptop and an internet connection and you're, you're pretty yeah. upset. So there's really no excuse. Um, profit First, I think, as a as a system and as kind of as a very really a practicum for okay here's exactly how to do it it gets into the why but it's a very practical book um, and I like it now in addition to profit first um, you've written let's see how many of these I can remember uh, the pumpkin plan surge yeah. Yeah. clockwork is that the newest one yeah yeah I got them all you can see my marketing right here it's all strategic oh here we go well that, that yeah. would, and then the, oh the toilet paper entrepreneur I was going to leave that one off. <laughs> you nailed it. You got them all. That's awesome. Yeah. So, in is the is that is the toilet paper entrepreneur? Was that the first one? What's the first one that yeah. you wrote? Yeah, toilet paper entrepreneur. I, there was a book I wrote now eleven years ago, and it was my I call it my angry kind of sophomore years or high school or whatever. It was, uh, but I think it has a very important message. I believe that the lack of resources is actually our biggest ally. Yet that 
prevents many entrepreneurs from stepping forward or even starting a business. We think we lack experience and that's going to hurt us. We think the lack of money is going to hurt us. I'd argue all the lack of all these things actually help us. For example, the lack of experience means we walk into an industry without knowing the rules of the industry, which means inevitably we break them. And that's how you stand out. Challenge the industry norms. And when you don't know the industry norms, you're in the best position. You won't fall into that groove of doing what everyone else is doing. Lack of money, we talked about it. You know, when, when you start restricting money, it forces innovation, forces frugality. It's called forced frugality, forced innovation. You find new ways to get better results in many cases with less money. And that's how we innovate in business. So we actually want to restrict money flow. And, and with Profit First, you have a system to do that. Uh, the lack of a network. A lot of people say, I don't know anyone in this industry. Uh, that's probably your biggest asset again, because now you don't have people that can artificially uh, expose you to this market. You have to find your way in. And yeah, you may have to claw and, and, and you know, tooth and nail get your way in, but now you're actually going to build uh, an infrastructure that's really strong so you can represent yourself well. So th these, these beliefs around lack in, in almost every single case, actually, I couldn't find one that wasn't, actually can be an extraordinary advantage. I think that's a great uh, a great parallel to that is especially working with creative entrepreneurs like most agency owners. Um, a big part of our program, what we teach people, is like focusing on one audience, solving one costly pain for that audience yeah. with a standardized solution. And there's this the, – almost every single case, there's this hesitancy of – well, I'm a creative or people are going to get bored if we're just solving the same problem for the same people. And it's like, no, if we take those constraints and that just channels our creativity down to constantly iterating and improving our, um, our solution to that and the way that we solve that problem, like we wind up with more powerful, a greater impact on the world than if we just do that, uh, distribute that disparately. That's right. It reminds me of a heart surgeon. Like you just said, uh, the fear that many entrepreneurs have is that we're doing one solution repeatedly over and over again. People get bored of it, right? You know, would you ever go to a heart surgeon saying, oh, you've done 500 heart surgeries. That's kind of boring. I don't want you operating on me. Right. No, it's actually the more heart surgeries that heart surgeon does, the greater our confidence grows that they have the competency to solve our life-threatening situation. You know, you would never go to your general practitioner and say, hey, listen, you've never done heart surgery before. I would love for it to be your first patient. Let's right. do this. And that, so this parallel works exactly into business. There is a faction of clientele who see that your solution is life-saving for their business. We need to master the marketing. We see it as absolutely critical for the movement of our business. Those clients, those are your highest value clients, will uh, seek you out because you've proven you can solve this repeatedly. They want the experience. So if you want the best clients, you have to repeat the process over and over and become masterful at it. Those people pay you a premium. Like I, if I have a heart attack, I will seek out a heart surgeon and I will find any – I'll scratch together any dough they need to pay them. I'll borrow from friends and family. I don't care because my life depends on it. My general practitioner, lucky to get a $50 copay. Um, so you can be a general practitioner. You're going to attract a general audience that generally won't pay you much or you can become a specialist and you'll attract the highest profile customers. Yeah, I think that's exactly right and it's almost comical to look at. This is an example that my business partner, Andrew, likes to use all the time, <clears throat> but the difference in compensation, what does an average uh, heart surgeon make versus a general practitioner? They both go to the same, uh, you know, they both have to get their MD. They both go through the same yeah, yeah. Uh, medical school, and one makes substantially more than another because they're specialists. So. It's, the, it's the truth. Maybe it's yeah. a sad truth when it comes to doctors, but it's the, the literal truth. Right, right, for sure. 
That's awesome. So then you wrote uh, once we, you got done with toilet paper entrepreneur, your angry years, the pumpkin plan. <laughs> yeah, so pumpkin plan. That's my personal favorite uh, book that I've written. Um, what I'd studied was uh, I found there's a lot of parallels in nature that translate into business. And what I was studying was how can businesses organically and healthily grow um, without venture capital and infusions of cash and stuff. There's these stories, these businesses that have grown explosively. Actually, one company that comes to mind is uh, Dave Ramsey's organization, $600 million in revenue, zero debt, no outside financing. I thought that's a large company. And uh, he's not the only example. There's many of these businesses that grow. And so what I did was I studied um, how they did it and found that there's a parallel with pumpkin farming, colossal pumpkin farming. There's certain steps you take. And one part of it is the niche specialization. Uh, pumpkin plant talks a lot about the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. 20% of your clients will yield 80% of your profits. You know, 20% of your employees are actually doing 80% of the critical work. So there's a lot of this, these parallels, and then you can start channeling that to your advantage and uh, experience colossal growth hmm. organically. Right. That's awesome. I, um, other than attempting to grow a milk-fed large pumpkin, I don't have a whole lot of outside experience. That was probably when I was eight. Don't That's have a lot awesome. Of other experience in pumpkin farming. That's awesome. But I did, I did a little bit. So uh, I studied these pumpkin farmers. Like, oh, I have a garden, so I'll try it out. Yeah. Um, not my passion, but I did. You know, <laughs> grew a pumpkin bigger than normal for sure. That's awesome. That was. Um, we had. I grew up on a on a farm, and so oh, we cool. had animals. So we dig leftover milk, and that was apparently. Something that, that we attempted was trying to cut the stem a little bit and then put it like a lay it in milk as part of and I I had the same problem. It wasn't my passion. So I was not very disciplined. Yeah, point. yeah, right, right, right. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Probably worked well at the beginning and then I killed it shortly thereafter. So <laughs> <clears throat> So Pumpkin Plan, then Surge. When yeah, Surge Surge um is the perfect complement to Pumpkin Plan, in my opinion. Because there was one part I left out of the pumpkin plan, um, that I subsequently discovered, and it's how to become an industry authority very quickly overnight, how to really get super fast momentum. Where do these pushes happen? Like sometimes you'll see all of a sudden like this company you never heard of all of a sudden is on the map. You hear of them, and anyone you talk to said, oh, yeah, I heard about them too. Like they get this explosive awareness. How does it happen? And so I tried to figure that out, and what I found is in any market that we serve, be it B2C or B2B, there's movements in the market. So I have a company that I own that we sell to accountants and bookkeepers. So first you know what the market is. Then you simply keep asking yourself and asking them, what's the movement? What's the change that's afoot? And when it comes to accounting and bookkeeping, uh, it's the sophistication of software. It's becoming so sophisticated. Artificial intelligence is becoming so strong that to do the traditional data entry uh, that bookkeepers do, to do the traditional tax returns, TurboTax is now blowing away uh, many accountants. So uh, what do they need? They need to become much more consultative, much more engaged in their clients on business directives and stuff like that. That was the opportunity. So my company, we placed an offering in front of it, um, and we're just now four years old. Company is the leader in this industry. It, just, it grew explosively because we're providing a solution to where the market's moving. And the beautiful thing is we only caught the early edge of it. There's a massive wave of movement coming to the space, and we're positioned in front of it. And when the our competition appears and they're starting to try to spring up now. We already have a four to five year head start. We have a lot of experience and knowledge that we've gleaned 
uh, and established that we can use to grab this market. Hmm. So surge is this process that any business can use to identify the movement in its community, its customers, position itself in front of it, and catch the momentum. That's that's perfect. So I've got that one on order. I haven't received it yet. Oh, awesome! Or, I hope you love or it. Or read it, but I'm but I'm looking forward to it. And that one ties in really well. It was so intriguing. It was like, how do we also communicate when we're specializing and becoming more focused? Um, right. Just just the natural advantage that that gives us in terms of insight into what's happening in that industry and the ability to innovate and be ahead and. Um, obviously gain the first mover advantage that you have. Yeah, exactly. First mover advantage. And when you can talk the language of your community too, um, that becomes ridiculously appealing to that community. There's an automatic transfer of trust. Right. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. And then, so we, we talked briefly through profit first here and there's a million more things we get into, but honestly, the best answer is to read the book clockwork. <laughs> I want to, I want to get to clockwork though as well. Um, cause all of these fascinate me and they're all like, there's, even though they're not written directly for, you know, exclusively for marketing agencies, right. um, all of this applies. It's all the same, um, yeah. business stuff. So what's the, as far as business design and clockwork? Yeah. So the sub, the subtitle of the book is design your business to run itself. And what I did was I, um, actually went back to nature. Uh, nature has a lot of solutions for us to figure out. How does organizational efficiency happen? And one organization, I'm doing the air quotes here, is beehives. I was studying beehives and found that they can scale very quickly by following certain principles and rules um, and simplifying the rule set for the organization. So I translated that into business. One of the, I think the, one of the two big takeaways, but one of the big two takeaways from clockwork is this. Every business has a singular function that it's hinging its success on, yet very few businesses know it. The, every business is making a promise to its customers. Again, many businesses don't know what that promise is. They just sell and the customer buys it. We have to figure out what our biggest promise is. I, the example I like to use is FedEx. FedEx promises to deliver packages on time. That's their big promise. They, they also offer customer service. They have print shops you can drive to. But their biggest promise, if you think FedEx, is I use FedEx to deliver packages on time. Once you know what the biggest promise is, then we, we can peel back the onion just one layer and say, what's the activity, the singular activity that most makes that promise a reality? There's many activities FedEx does to deliver packages on time, but the most important activity is logistics. And we need to go through the same process. We need to say, what's the one biggest promise I'm making to my customer? It can only be one. And behind that, what's the one most important activity making that promise a reality? And when we know that, we have to make sure that one activity is always humming along. It must be always happening. And if we ignore it, we're in trouble. So back to beehives, beehives, you know, they don't make a promise to customers. Obviously they don't have customers, but their commitment is the survivability of the hive. The number one activity that makes sure the hive continues on is the production of eggs, Mm -hmm. spawning new bees. It needs to constantly spawn bees. Every bee knows, make sure egg production is humming along. Well, in, in FedEx, they say, make sure logistics are humming along. FedEx would never say, you know, let's screw logistics. Let's start focusing on uh, the quality of our paper at the print shops. Let's have the highest quality paper. Like they will go out of business overnight. Um, some people may be happy, but the majority of people say, I'll never work with FedEx again. Uh, they don't They don't know when they're going to deliver packages. They're not doing logistics. It's, it's haphazard. Conversely, if FedEx says, we're going to deliver packages on time, we're going to focus on logistics no matter what. And you know, the quality of paper at our print shops, yeah, let's just get the cheap stuff. FedEx won't go out of business. 
they may have some customers that are upset. Some people may notice, but their core competency is always being served. Mm-hmm. So much so that during the holiday season, the winter holiday season, there's such a surge in package demand. FedEx doesn't say, oh, we can't handle it. No, they pull managers out from behind desks. They hire extra staff. They do whatever it takes to make sure that that core competency, the QBR, I call it the queen B-roll, goes unabated. And so what we need to do as business owners is define what's the one biggest promise we're making to our customers, identify the activity that makes that promise reality, and protect it and serve it at all costs. It must always be humming along. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's what brings about ultimate business efficiency, that one thing. Just keep that one thing humming along, and everything else kind of gets elevated by it. Right, yep. Keeping the main thing the main thing. Keep the main Overall. thing. The, oh, I like oh, yeah. that. should have been the title. Keep the main <clears throat> thing the main thing. That's, that's great. So what's next for you? Full-time author? I'm, I'm a, yeah, I'm a full-time you, author. I see you're and, back in nature now. Yeah, back in nature. what the next one is. Yep, so I actually met with my publisher on uh, Monday and uh, Penguin Books, and uh, the next book, working title is Fix This Next. And what it's about is a methodology to rapidly find the specific problem your business needs to be resolved next. Hmm. Assuming the QBR is humming along, there's always things that need to be improved, but most entrepreneurs actually try to fix everything. Oh, we need more sales. Oh my gosh, we need to do, make more copy. We need to do this. We need... It's this constant jumping around. So this tool I've developed uh, and have tested now with about 100 companies, and we'll keep testing it, will pinpoint specifically what you need to fix, help you fix it, and then you can free up to find the next challenge you need to face. And it has a, a guide to keep finding the newest and most important challenge that needs to be fixed next. Okay. That's awesome. So I'm assuming my guess would be uh, it's easier in hindsight to point back and say, look at this logical progression from toilet paper entrepreneur on to fix this next. Yeah. Was this part of a master plan or does it all come more organically? It's a little bit organic, um, but it's a little bit of a master plan. There's there's two things I'm doing. One thing is I wrote Toilet Paper Entrepreneur as a starting point uh, and then asked readers who had read it uh, what they need next. So that was kind of my fix that this next. And they said, well, I want to grow organically. And when they said that, they said, well, I'm growing, but I'm not profitable. And it created that. So it kind of triggered the sequence of books. Hmm. Um, but also what I'm trying to do, I'm so driven to serve the entrepreneurial community. And I have my reasons behind it. I, I just love micro business. Um, I'm trying to create a compendium, if that's the right word, of books. And I, I ultimately have a vision for about 25 books that tackle the 25 biggest challenges we as entrepreneurs face. And my hope is that at the end of my career as an author or my lifetime, I don't know which will be first, um, maybe they'll be simultaneously, <laughs> <laughs> is that when uh, someone has a challenge that they'll find, one, I'll, I'll have a solution for them. Right. That's my that's my intention. That's awesome. Is there any, um, based on this principle of fix this next, my guess would be, that you would kind of assess where people are at right now and point to, hey, this is the book that you need. But are they meant to be? Is there any order to intentional? Well, not necessarily intentional order, but is there any order that you'd recommend for people to go through what you've currently put out? Yeah, so great questions. And so I used to say, yeah, start with whatever, Pumpkin Planner. Now I've changed my tune the last few years with the research I've done for Fix This Next. And my question is, what's your biggest challenge? So when people say, what book should I read next? I say, well, what's your biggest challenge? And they say, well, we're struggling to hire someone. Read a book on hiring. And I haven't written that book yet. I plan to, but I haven't. Find a book on hiring. Or someone says, we're struggling to grow. 
read the pumpkin plan. We don't have enough profit. Read profit first. We're not efficient. So I just challenge people to really think about what their next imminent challenge is. Uh, tackle that in, in that book in a, uh, with a book that'll serve it. And maybe I haven't written it yet, so uh, I will get to it. <laughs> but that's where you should start is right. wherever you're most challenged. That's awesome. Well, thanks for letting me be curious and ask a million questions. Oh, thanks for asking, bro. Um, this is awesome. Yeah, this has been really fun. So obviously Profit First. Now I've got a little bit of a write-up in the Facebook group here. Uh, if anyone has any questions from either our personal experience or um, – or from from Mike's side, there's a contact. Is what's the best place to point people? Contact for obviously read the book and then yeah yeah reach out. I, I, my website, I'll give you a shortcut to get there. It's mikemichalowitz.com. But I already know we were talking about this off air. Like no one can spell that. Yep. Um. So, so I have a shortcut. It's mikemotorbike.com. Uh. So Mike Motorbike. I used to in, in high school be called Mike Motorbike. The irony is I've never driven a motorcycle in my life, but whatever. <laughs> so mikemotorbike.com. And on my site, um, all these books we talked about, I have free chapter downloads so you can explore it. Um, I've, I'm a podcaster. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. I'm a blogger too. All that stuff's available for free at MikeMotorbike.com. That is awesome. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for joining us. This was really fun. I enjoyed it. Right. Thank you, brother. I appreciate this, man.